Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Gavin Farah, who's the CFO of Central Asia Metals, who are a copper uh, producer with operations in Kazakhstan. And they also have a zinc lead operation in northern Macedonia. Um, Gavin uh, has a geology and finance background. Um, so it'd be good to get his take on the industry, having worked in South Africa and the UK, and obviously now has a focus on Eastern Europe and Central Asia. So that's welcome, Gavin, to the podcast. How are you doing, Gavin? Very well, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me on. No, and I appreciate your time. Um, before I um, we get into this and asking you to uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background, um, just want to remind everyone that's um, obviously listening to the podcast, appreciate um, you sharing sharing these, uh, the podcast and these uh, episodes out to your friends and family um, and in, anyone else in the industry that you feel would um, benefit from listening to this podcast. And also the people who are watching this on our YouTube channel, appreciate if you can um, uh, share this episode again amongst people that you know that uh, you feel that this could benefit. Um, and also if you can like below, click on the like button um, that helps us obviously um, get more engagement and more people can access this podcast and this YouTube video as well. So appreciate all your um, shares and likes um, so we can get it out to more people. So back to Gavin, just wanted to give our audience a little bit, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background, um, how you got into mining until sort of present day now. Sure. Um, thanks, Rob. Look, uh... It's quite a long road when I sort of reflect on my on my career. It's been sort of long and varied, I guess, which is not a bad thing these days. But I grew up actually in a mining town just east of Johannesburg, and the house overlooked the head frame and the whole uh, the whole track of the, the sort of cocoa wagons, as we used to call them in those days, taking ore to the plant. So always been familiar with the with the industry. And I guess growing up in South Africa, I was also fortunate or very fortunate enough to have my postgraduate studies sponsored by what was then GenCorp, which has morphed through a variety of mergers and acquisitions into what's now BHP Billiton. And they sponsored uh, my studies in geology. Now, I guess I'd always been interested in the sort of science and uh, maths and those sort of subjects at school and was keen to get into some career that involved those sorts of things. And I picked geology, I suppose, partly because I like the outdoors of you know aspect of it, where I'd be running around in khaki shorts and a Land Rover, which I did do a little bit of. And the the ability to travel, I've always been fascinated with, you know, going to and seeing other parts of the world and other cultures and those sort of things. So those drove somewhat the the degree choice. I, I was I was always going to be engineering or geology, and I know there's always a dispute and a little bit of sort of combativeness between the two disciplines, but. Uh, I've, I've never really sort of suffered as a result of that, which is good. So after um, the studies were completed, actually, I graduated into a bit of a recession and frankly couldn't, uh, couldn't find any other work other than with a research program 
doing scientific research, which has actually turned out to be an amazing privilege as well, because it involved three expeditions to Antarctica, which was pretty, uh, pretty good fun for a young man in those days. Uh, and, you know, when you're not aware of all the hazards and various other things, you do some silly things, but you know, collected some pretty rocks and did a lot of analysis on them. And I was uh, you know, very grateful for that, uh, that opportunity as well and was presenting some of the results of my research at a conference when Anglo-American tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to come and join them in uh, what was their geophysics department at the time, but primarily looking at remote sensing and a particular range of, you know, they were, they were very specialist and they were looking at uh, short, short, um, shortwave infrared side of the spectrum and how to use that to prospect for minerals. So again, kind of cutting edge technology. And it was what it showed me was that the, the the amount of money that mining companies were willing to spend on exploration and technology and how, fur, how much further ahead they were than as general academia were in terms of their understanding of a lot of these things. So it was all proprietary. So that was quite fun as well. And then onto the, the boots on the ground part, I uh, worked for Anglo in Tanzania for about two years, uh, greenfields exploration, gold, a little bit of base metals, a couple of the, assets that we looked after at the time as a big team of us uh, was Gator, which was part of Anglo Gold Ashanti. Now that developed into a mine. Buzwagi developed into a mine for, uh, for Barrick. And there were a couple of others that are now up in, uh, in Acacia's portfolio as well. So it was quite a good, uh, good sort of stomping ground for a young geologist learning the ropes, you know, running programs, all those sorts of disciplines. And again, that went into a more kind of project development phase with the Yatella project in West Africa, again with Anglo. And towards the end of that, and that was a feasibility study that we were running. And it was actually in joint venture with a company called I Am Gold, who continually sent investment bankers and analysts out to look at the assets, you know, typical Canadians trying to get their stock price up with news flow and various other things. And I was looking at uh, these bankers turning up and you know, refusing to get out into the 50 degree heat out of the sort of air conditioned Land Rovers and, you know, core shed was yeah not something they visited because under a tin a tin roof and that sort of heat again was just you know, inhospitable stuff but you know by that stage we'd all got used to it so I thought to myself I've been in the bush for sort of four or five years you know getting more and more interested in the financial metrics around how to develop projects what decisions got made into getting those so I decided to come to London to study a finance degree so I think it was a lot of people go why geology and finance it's an odd mix but you know not all, not all geologists are enumerates. I think most of us are actually very numerate these days because everything is computer-based nowadays. And a lot, of, a lot of the geology I was interested in um, was, was, was a bit of maths behind it as well. So getting into the banking world wasn't that much of a leap because I, I understood the industry and I had a lot of empathy for the clients, which I think counted quite a bit when I was working with mining clients on financing their projects in the junior end of the spectrum and even in the majors, you know, just having a, being able to understand very quickly what companies like Anglo and Extrata were up to at, at the time and looking at their M&A opportunities and how, how to finance those was, uh, was a fairly fun part of the career as well. So I think the, the move from a technical background into banking is, is quite well trodden now uh, amongst a lot of my colleagues that I was, you know, people at Anglo that I was with are now head of commodities at major investment banks and you know, various other things. So I don't think it's a, an unusual path to follow, but uh, it certainly raises a few eyebrows every now and then. But. Okay. Um, 
just a couple of things that you uh, obviously you mentioned, obviously working Antarctica. Mm. I wonder if you can just give us a, a quick snapshot of of it, the, your experience working in, in Antarctica. So I, thought, I think that would be of interest definitely to me and hopefully to our audience. Well, like I said, it was it's very scientific research based. We weren't exploring for minerals or anything like yeah. that. So that's the first point I'd make. And I think it's still in, well, back then, you, you definitely weren't allowed to do that. And I believe that that rule still remains. Um, you know, it was just like boys' own adventure stuff. It was two-man tent out in the, on the ice for you know, three or four months at a time, quite isolated, but we did meet up with other groups every now and then. So, you know, you sit and have a beer. You have to defrost the beer in a black plastic bag every day so you'd have a cold beer to have when you got back from the field in the evening. And just a lot of autonomy. So you'd have to design the program yourself, execute it yourself, and then produce the research you know, not necessarily in isolation. And, you know, once you got back to the labs and into the university campuses, you had a lot of knowledge to draw on. But again, I think as a, as a background for anybody who wants to run a business, you know, I think geology really gives you that broad spectrum of, you know, how to plan, how to execute, you know, how to produce results. And that certainly was uh, pretty helpful for, through the rest of my career. But no, in terms of the, the experience, it was just, Utterly fantastic. I was going through some photographs the other day uh, to digitize them. I still on old 35 mil slides uh, because my daughter, who's eight years old, her school asked me to give a talk on it. And uh, the first question that I got asked from a, an eight year old boy was, if you went to Antarctica, how come you're still alive? <laughs> and I realized they'd been studying Scott's expedition, which obviously didn't end well for those poor guys. But yeah. you know, modern days, it's, it's a lot easier. So Look, I think it's, um, as I said earlier, it was an absolute privilege, Rob, to be allowed to get there. There was, I think, a dozen field scientists when I was on the program and probably 80 people in total every year going down on the South African program. And of course, many other countries had programs as well. And we you know, liaised and worked with the Germans, the Brits, the Norwegians, um, even the Russians sometimes. So and that was back in the sort of 90s so it was kind of unusual in those days so it was a very collaborative effort and I think that was uh, part of what I enjoyed and still have contacts all over the world from that that experience yeah um you're obviously the the CFO of Central Asia Metals now um what do you think you've got an advantage being a CFO where you've had um a geology background previously um, do you think you've you're, like if you compare yourself to other CFOs, do you think you've got some advantages because you were a geologist um, previously um, and being out in the field, maybe understanding what the guys are going through, being in on site in a yeah. mining operation? From look from that aspect, absolutely. I think you do have a lot of a greater detailed understanding of the technical size of the business and where it translates into the CFO role is often in the budgeting process where you're going, do you really need that piece of kit or is that enough meters to be drilling here? And that, you know, development costs and all those sorts of things are part of what I've dealt with, you know, over the last 20 years of my experience. So that certainly does help. I, I guess not being an accountant has its disadvantages, but I'm, very lucky and then I've got a couple of talented accountants that work for me that uh, paper over those deficiencies in my own experience. But I think that is part of management, right? You've got to delegate, you've got to trust people to deliver the things. And 
my banking career certainly taught me to analyze accounts properly and make sure that they're all you know, added up properly. I guess it's an obvious thing to say, but you know, analyzing things, spotting areas that potentially would lead to issues later on as part of the sort of banking slash financial analyst mindset as well. So from that aspect, I'm fairly well set up. You know, ask me about IFRS and I probably know about three or four rules, right? But, and, and again, you've got to rely on people and hire talented people in order to you know, make sure that you are covered in all those areas. So I wouldn't say compared to other CFOs, I was at a massive advantage, no, because the, the flip side, I'm at a disadvantage in terms of their accounting and reporting knowledge. But I think overall it balances. Where it does help maybe is having a more strategic outlook. And I think that's more the kind of CFO that you're seeing more and more of. I think you saw it back in sort of early 2000s with companies like Extrata that had ex-investment bankers rather than chartered accountants as, uh, as CFOs that were looking to grow a business and, and really drive forward there. So the CFO aspect of my job is mostly around treasury and balance sheet and how to finance the future of the business, you know, as well as all of the, the other aspects of the job. But the, where I can sort of bring a little bit more to it is just understanding that deeper industry understanding and knowledge of different things and different products out there for us to use and effectively run a, an efficient balance sheet. Yeah. What would you say the, the, the career path is if someone was to follow in your footsteps, i.e. be a, a geologist, be a mine engineer or a, any other discipline within the mining industry? that then want to move into more of a financial type role and then potentially become the CFO of a company. Is there a particular career path they sort of go, go down? Obviously, is there certain qualifications? Do you, do you feel that they should, they should, they need, obviously you've got a um, finance, you started a master's in finance, I believe. I've got um, an MBA in finance. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. I mean, and the reason why I'm asking that question, there might be uh, people listening to this podcast that are either engineers, geologists, they could be surveyors, they could be a- any type of um, uh, en- engineering type of yeah. mine in the mining industry, but may have their future in a CFO role, for instance. What, 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 what advice would you give them if they want to go down that particular path? Well, if we start right at the beginning of people's careers, I mean, what we see a little bit too much of is people who graduate with a mining degree, right? Either engineering or metallurgy or geology, and then immediately want to jump into finance and banking. And what I would encourage people who are thinking of that to do is definitely go out and get two to five years of experience in the industry. And we're in a cycle now where I think there will be a lot of opportunities for young graduate engineers and geos to get out and really experience what the industry is about, both in terms of development of assets, exploration for new mineralogy, for, for new mineral deposits, and also you know, executing on sort of construction, project management, and then all the way through into production. And I think if you can get an experience like that in that five-year window, that really then sets you up to do a whole bunch of different things within the industry, whether it be investment banking, like I went into, or getting into consultancy or whatever, it at least gives you that firm footing in the industry and with hard industry experience. 
And that not only sets you up from a knowledge base, but also gives you a lot of credibility. Uh, you know, people that are sort of five to 10 years into their careers, you know, you just never forget that a lot of the skills that they have are transferable. And I mentioned earlier the numeracy part of it. So all engineers and most geologists now are extremely numerate people. And if you're going to get into finance, clearly that's the foundation of any financial career is being able to work with numbers. So I would say that those opportunities will always exist. And it's really down to the individual in terms of creating those opportunities. Now I did it via studying and then I also, I was tenacious. I mean, I must have applied for over a hundred jobs when I finished my MBA, mm. um, all of them in, in banking. And I wanted to get into banking because I'd, as I said, had some experience of people who were doing it. It looked like an interesting job where I could use both sort of the new education that I had plus all the years of experience I'd built up. But also as a career, I think finance is quite fascinating. I think there are a lot of different aspects to it. There are the equity capital markets, the debt capital markets, there are the financial derivatives. And I, I got interested basically by reading novels about finance. I think there was one called Barbarians at the Gate, which is a, about a big M&A that occurred. I've in seen the, the film. Mm. I've seen the film. And, and the other one I read was the I think called the smartest guys in the room, not because I ever thought I was one, but it was about how financial instruments can unravel. That was around the Enron um, saga. So it's, you know, if, if you have an interest in it, then drive yourself to, to achieving it. And I don't think it's impossible for anybody because I think nowadays and the way people are hiring, we are moving much more towards a meritocracy. And I saw that in investment banking where you had people from all walks of life who had all sorts of different educations, be it you know, classics, English, engineering, whatever, as long as they were smart and they could get their heads around sort of complex, well, maybe not even that complex, but just you know, being logical and numerate at the same time, you'll be all right. Yeah. Um, what made you sort of uh, join Central Asia Metals? Um, because obviously you were working in on the finance side of the industry. Mm. Um, what made you then go back into mining? Uh, it's a good question, Rob, and I, it's probably one I've never probably satisfactorily answered for myself. But I got to a point in my banking career, and I'd been doing it for about a dozen years, where I was working more closely at that point with junior mining companies and both doing equity investing on behalf of the bank and also the debt product as well. And it came back to, I suppose, my technical background going, okay, well, what these guys are doing is, is actually hands-on developing something. Maybe I should get into that. And out of the blue, an opportunity arose with a, it was actually a, a cash shell company to go out and locate or find an opportunity and then bring it to the market. And I did that and it failed, but as everyone says, you learn through failure, and I certainly learned a whole lot. And I got in touch with Nick Clark, who at the time was the CEO of Central Asia Metals, and just said, look, I'm out of work. I'm sort of knocking around. If you ever need a hand doing something, give me a call. And I was fortunate that a couple of old clients of mine knocked on the door, and they said, look, we're doing a capital raise. Can you just help us? We don't have the bandwidth internally to do it. So I sat alongside CFOs and CEOs and helped them with some fundraisings and helped other sort of private equity funds a little bit with some strategic 
assistance in terms of how to, you know, where they should be focusing. And that sort of kept, kept the lights on for a while. And then Nick did call me up and said, look, you needed some help. There were only, I think, four or five people in the head office at the time. And they were being, they very successfully developed the Kunrad project in, in Kazakhstan. And we're being shown a lot of opportunities by investment banks, but didn't have anybody to, with the time effectively, to sift through all of these things and rank them and decide on whether or not they should be pursuing any of these opportunities. So that was the first thing I did for Nick, and it was as a consultant. So I spent, I think it was four days a month initially with Central Asia Metals, and then that sort of grew into a longer period of time. And ultimately, after about five or six months, they offered me a full-time role. And oddly enough, I was actually interviewing for a couple of banking roles at the time. And that's really, I guess, where the big decision was made. Like, like, do I go back into banking or do I go corporate? And I think at the time, the, the whole environment around banking was changing in terms of you know, who was able to make the big decisions, who was able to originate the kinds of deals that I'd like to be doing. And it was getting harder and harder for the bankers and you know more and more regulatory and compliance time spent on regulatory and compliance issues rather than actually going out and speaking to people and shaking trees and getting deals and it just became a more attractive environment to be back in corporate ultimately for me which I've really enjoyed the move I have to say and I think one thing that I think a lot of bankers and consultants don't appreciate is just how hard it is running a mining company now I'm fortunate and I run a, a part run a company with um with nigel as a ceo that is fairly well set up we've got two low-cost operations we've got steady production yes you know, we're a mining company we have issues but in terms of all the mining companies i could have ended up with it's probably been a, an easy transition frankly okay i wonder if you can uh, give us an overview of those two operations obviously and the company but overview of the two operations Sure. So you mentioned the Kunrad copper facility in Kazakhstan. Now that is pretty unique. It's a dump retreatment processing project. So what we're doing there is processing old Soviet era dumps that were formed around the exploitation of the Kunrad mine. That mine ran from around 1938, I think it was, to about 1995 and has sporadically operated ever since then. And what they did throughout that process was dump about 650 million tons of waste on surface. Now, it's a porphyry deposit, so the geologists amongst your listeners will understand that there's no immediate kind of boundary to a porphyry system. It just sort of bleeds out over, over space horizontally. So what we've ended up with on surface is just the below cutoff grade stuff that the miners didn't fancy putting through the processing plant at the time. And what we've also got is a lot of oxide material that was mined in the early part of, the, of that mine's life that the technology didn't exist to process. So what we now call the eastern dumps is primarily oxide material that's been placed on surface. And the western dumps is primarily what used to be sulfide material, but has been on surface for so long that it has started to weather into secondary sulfides and various other things. So we can still exploit it by leaching with very dilute sulfuric acid which we put, on, put onto the dumps. 
and then we collect the pregnant leach solution and pump that to a plant. So what makes it unique is that there's no mining, no crushing and no sort of pre-processing of the material before it goes into the, into the plant facility to produce copper metal, ultimately. The first thing that struck me when I visited the mine was how quiet it was because the only thing you can hear rather than big trucks and crushing equipment and you know huge heavy machinery going the whole time it was just the whirring of electric pumps because it's a, and you're just pumping you know a thousand cubic meters of solution around every day so the guys that built that were really Nick Clark who I mentioned earlier chuckled Howard Nicholson and then Nigel Robinson who's the current CEO it was effectively that team of three that pulled that whole thing together in terms of the technicals and the financing of it. And it was that project that Central Asian Metals used as a basis for its IPO back in 2010. We raised $60 million to build that project, brought it in on time and under budget, and we're producing copper in April 2012 when the price was around $8,000 a ton. And the other thing, because we're not doing mining and because electricity costs in Kazakhstan are very low and labor costs are competitive, we produce copper there at 51 cents a pound. So it's a very low cost operation, mm. highly profitable. And as a platform to build a company off, it's been fantastic because of the high cash flow and the long life, we've got a life out to 2034 on that project. And as I said, started in 2012. Uh, it's been a good opportunity for me to come in as business development director and I that's that was the role I joined as in in 2014 because you were under no pressure to do a deal where you know if you get to towards the end of life and I think too many miners do this they they enjoy the good days and then all of a sudden wake up and they've got five years left of their own their core asset and to do a deal within that five-year period it does put pressure on so Myself and Nigel feel under no enormous pressure to do deals. We did the Sasa deal just over three years ago, 2017, we closed that. What attracted us there was the low cost as well, which allowed us to continue with our capital sort of allocation program, which we can talk about if you like, Rob. And um, so the Kunrad asset, you know, produces around 13 and a half thousand tons of copper every year at, at low cost, you know, and we expect that sort of run rate to continue um, for the next next few years. At least. So it's a, okay. it's a great one. Um, you mentioned, obviously, the allocation uh, program. Mm -hmm. Just wonder if you can uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, it's, uh, I guess, getting back to 2012, when the, the guys started producing, what, what we realised is that the the equity markets were starting to treat mining slightly differently. Whereas before, if you went out and you discovered something, clearly there was a big re-rate in your share price. And then you'd see through that development cycle, there's that famous graph that everybody shows that looks like a sort of snake. And through that development cycle, it would go up and you'd hit engineering milestones and you'd re-rate on all of those. So you'd complete a pre-fees and a feasibility study and then you'd finance the thing. And then while you were constructing it, the share price would always come down because people just saw risk and then you'd start producing and it'd go up again. And probably around 10 years ago, equity investors started demanding something different. They were like, okay, well, we all like the upside and the commodity price exposure and all those sort of things, but we also want some money back. And I think we started seeing the, the large caps 
definitely changing, you know, fixing their balance sheets post the financial crisis, disposing of unprofitable assets or higher cost assets, paying down debt and reinstating big dividend programs. And those things have remained in place for the last decade. On the junior end of the spectrum, there was not a lot of that going on. And where Nick and Nigel and the board saw an opportunity was to become a junior mining company that paid a healthy dividend. And because of the low cost base at Kunrad, what they were able to do is put a pretty unique dividend policy in place where they paid or paid out 20% of gross revenue, which is, I've never seen a dividend policy like that anywhere else. Yeah. And which gave investors a real sort of kicker on their returns, but also almost double the leverage to the copper price, if you see what I mean. So you had the capital appreciation of the share price levered to the copper price, but also then the payout was directly related to the copper price as well. And that was in place for five years, that program. And we only changed it when we bought Sasa because we were becoming a little bit more of a grown-up company. We had then multi-commodities and introduced, I suppose you could say, uh, another element of risk into the business by becoming an underground miner, which uh, we didn't have previously. So we rejigged the policy to pay out 30 to 50% of free cash flow. And that free cash flow is defined as cash from operations, less capital expenditure. And then we also take into account debt repayments as well. But the 30 to 50% is effectively free cash, less CapEx. And that allows us at least some flexibility to move that payout in response to how the commodity cycle is going, how our other sort of demands on capital are. And so far, it's been able to maintain a good yield of between 6 and 7% as well, which was pretty much what we were on previously. So it's a, it's a good policy. I think it's fairly clear to understand if, if people want to look it up, it's explicitly stated within our financial statements, both at interim and, and final year. So it's a pretty easy calculation to make. Okay. Um, just going back to obviously uh, the, uh, the two operations, um, what's the sort of major differences in jurisdictions um, with obviously uh, Kazakhstan and um, Macedonia? Is there any major differences working in either of those two, two jurisdictions? Um, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously there is, but does it bother I suppose us? That, yeah, I suppose, I suppose anything that's pretty glaring. Um, no, they've, they've, they've got different tax regimes for a start. I mean, start from the CFO perspective. So, <laughs> but both are competitive. So in Kazakhstan, we pay uh, corporate income tax at a rate of 20%. And then we pay a royalty, which is called mineral extraction tax of 5.7%. Whereas in North Macedonia, the tax rate is 10% and the royalty rate is 2%. So both, as I said, very favorable fiscal regimes. Kazakhstan, I would say, is much more familiar with the natural resources industry because it's an economy that's effectively founded on it. They are a big oil and gas producer. And you'll know that companies like Kazakh Miss, Kaz Minerals, ENRC, as it was called in the day, you know, these are all big producers of, of commodities. So just about, with, with a couple of exceptions, I mean, most major companies have had a look at Kazakhstan. So Glencore is a big operator there. Uh, Rio Tinto has pegged a lot of ground there and has a team out there exploring for copper. 
Kaz Minerals, we all know very well, very successful story coming out of Kazakhstan. And then you've got all the US oil majors in there, plus KMG, Kaz Munai Gas, which is, you know, a huge local oil and gas producer. So as a natural resources economy, they're very familiar with it. Right? And I think operating there, therefore, you've got pretty well established legislation around the minerals laws and they have opened up a little bit and they've had a more sort of Western approach to issuing of licenses, which is great. So it's a lot of ref, you know, positive reforms that have gone through Kazakhstan, whereas before you'd be subject to a government tender process. Now you can actually go onto a, an online cadastral system, see a pit piece of land that you like. If it's available, you can peg it and go and explore. Uh, so I think from that perspective, it's fairly well set up. Whereas North Macedonia, whilst it has a, a few operating mines with the political situation there and the government changing, I think it was back in 2017. Um, yeah, the, the new government is really sort of settling into how it deals with the natural resources industry. And so we spend a lot of time and we've spent good time with uh, government officials and also department officials, just familiarizing them with what we do, how we do it, the fact that we behave responsibly in terms of our environmental performance, in our social engagement, and, you know, paying our taxes and being very transparent about our finances. And that's all won a lot of goodwill over the last three years, I have to say, Rob, because, you know, unfortunately, we had an incident with our tailings facility in September last year. Yeah, and um, the way we dealt with that was you know just through real transparency with the locals and also with our own shareholders and in effect we ended up getting a lot more a lot of support out of the local communities and the government in order to help us rectify these things and keep the operation going while we were doing it so i think from that perspective you know north macedonia is definitely coming up the curve and i think there are a couple of big mine developments that hopefully they can get their heads around in the next few years, and we'll um, we'll see an industry there that'll grow into something that's beneficial for the whole nation. Yeah. Okay. Um, as a, I want to slightly wrap this up. So, as a sort of conclusion, um, I spoke with uh, Nick Clark, which was um, one of my first episodes. So, um, if anyone's listening wants to um, see how things have developed from obviously doing this uh, episode to when I interviewed Nick, probably nearly two years ago. Um, I just wondered if you can uh, give us an update on the company and obviously your projects and how things are moving uh, forward and what's the sort of future over the, I suppose, short to medium term. Sure. Well, Nick himself has, uh, has moved from, I think two years ago, he probably was chairman, wasn't he? Um, so Nick was effectively one of the founders of Camel in, in its current form. You know, he was brought in about three years after the company was formed, but really sort of focused the strategy on the uh, on the Kunrad operation. And uh, he's now moved to a non-exec chairman role, but they're still very passionate and uh, involved, which is good because his level of experience and knowledge is uh, is second to none, really. I think the the major change that we've made since since you spoke to Nick really is uh, some optimization work that we've done in uh, at Sasa in North Macedonia. We've a lot of little tweaks to that operation that have improved it. And so now we, you know, very proud of the fact that we've had, you know, a, a sort of LTI free, I think we're at 700 days at Conrad and, you know, I might have the numbers wrong, but um, 
you know, huge improvement in the health and safety regime there as well. But also, you know, as I said earlier, we, in terms of capital allocation, we're going to be spending some money at North at uh, Sasa over the next two years to transition from a sublevel cave mining method to a cut and fill mining method, which does two things: it improves the health and safety, and also improves the extraction of the ore body and ensures the longevity of that project. The really good side effect of that is also that we can then place about 40% of our tailings underground, which tailings being a hot topic in the mining industry is a good thing. You know, the, the fewer sort of tons of tailings you're putting on the surface these days, the better. So that's gonna, you know, the outlook for the next two years is, is uh, partly focusing on rolling out that program. And by the end of 2022, transitioning into that new mining method. Uh, Kunrad, it's pretty set fair, really. I think the that operation will continue, as I said, to 2034, producing, you know, we're guiding 12 and a half to 13 and a half thousand tons of copper. It's a, a neat little operation. We don't see any necessary kind of capital investment there other than sustaining capital over the next few years. We may be looking at um, some facilities to facilitate a little more green energy usage but you know those, those are sort of ideas that we're mulling at the moment and uh, in terms of the business itself the outlook is really around growth through M&A and I think we've got myself and Nigel and a lady called Louise Rathel the three of us focusing a fair amount of our time on the sort of inorganic growth aspects of the business now. Okay. And I was just going to ask you from a finance perspective, obviously, as you're the CFO, um, in terms of obviously cash flows, um, investments, and, and obviously you mentioned M&A, is there anything in particular you're focusing on? Is it focusing on a particular commodity, particular jurisdiction? Well, look, in terms of finances, we've got a, a really good balance sheet. I think we started the year net debt of just under $40 million. We've got, we're repaying our current debt facility at a rate of $3.2 million a month. So every repayment we make gives us a little bit more ability to go out and do something. And I think with the sort of balance sheet in, in great shape, we do have the ability to go and purchase something transformational. Now, clearly we'd love to do that because we think scale is important these days in the mining industry. But there's a limited number of opportunities out there, and I think you know it's going to take patience and as patience. And what we need to ensure at every step is making sure that whatever we do is a creature for our own shareholders. So we're not just going to go for scale for scale's sake, and we're not going to buy anything that's going to put an enormous amount of pressure on the balance sheets. I think is the two things. Now, in terms of metals, clearly copper remains a focus. We are active in the three base metals. We think that all three of those metals have a, a decent outlook over the next, you know, the foreseeable future at least. Of the three, I'd probably say copper is the most attractive in terms of future outlook and its involvement with the electric vehicle thesis. Um, but I think in terms of what we're looking for, the objective is really to get to a point where we are producing from a diverse number of assets at a rate of around 100,000 tons of copper a year and potentially, you know, using that as a platform to grow even further. So, yeah. Okay. Okay, Gavin, really appreciate your time and uh, give us a, 
give us an overview of your career. Um, like I said, coming from geology, moving into a, a CFO role, and give us an update on Central Asia Metals. So really appreciate your time um, in providing, obviously, the content around that. If our audience wants to reach out to you and may have some questions around um, that type of a career path from geology going into a CFO role or want to know more a little bit about Central Asia Metals, how can they go about doing that? The best, best thing to do is speak to, well, I mean, people are more welcome to drop me an email. I think my email address is probably on a few press releases. <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, myself and, and Louise, very happy to speak to people about the business. Primarily, if people want to know more about Central Asia Metals, then Louise is really the, the prime contact and you know, her details are on our website. Um, I'm very happy to field questions and calls from people as well. And if anybody wants to contact me, um, on their careers and various other things. LinkedIn is a good way to go. Uh, just, just mention that you saw me here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, no, and I do get people uh, coming to me and asking questions. And also, I, I get, um, I get some of our um, listeners uh, actually approach me after listening to episodes. For instance, may listen to this and may have some questions because that's what they're thinking. They, they may be thinking they're going down that path. So. Yeah hopefully they will uh, connect with you and may have some questions around that. And you're helping someone uh, who may have that mindset that they want to go down that career path, but uh, really at a stumbling block. Um, so yeah, appreciate you. If you could provide any advice, if someone does reach out to if them. We, yeah, so, if we can help, we will, but I'd, I'd encourage people to, you know, back themselves. If they want to do that career change, which, uh, you know, I, I did a kind of half career change where I went from, you know, one aspect of the mining industry into another. Um, but I, I know people have done, you know, the full change from something to another thing. And I think it's a, it's just a case of backing your own abilities, really. Yeah. Uh, if, I I can, suppose... if I can facilitate that for anybody or, or you know, via a chat or whatever else, then, you know, very happy to do so. Yeah. And I suppose also what they're passionate about. So they may have gone into geology or engineering or even metallurgy and just feel like, do you know what? I want to do something a little bit different. It's not necessarily what I expected, but I'm technical. I like numbers and then I can move in that path. So yeah. Appreciate you, uh, yeah, appreciate your uh, update and giving us uh, your, your, your view around that. So um, hope you hope you enjoyed listening to the podcast. I certainly did. And um, pre again, appreciate if you can pass um, this episode on to others that may be, uh, may be interested in this and um, appreciate your, your continued support. So until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining helping each other to improve the mining industry.